This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today, a returning guest, um, a writer that I'm a huge fan of and teacher, Brad Warner. Brad, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, have yet another conversation with me. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, always a pleasure. So uh, just quickly, for anyone not familiar with Brad's work, Brad Warner is the author of Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen and numerous other titles, including It Came From Beyond Zen, Don't Be a Jerk, and Hardcore Zen. A Soto Zen teacher, he is also a punk bassist, filmmaker, and popular blogger who leads workshops and retreats around the world. In addition to his books, his writing appears in Lion's Roar, Tricycle, Buddha Dharma, and Alternative Press. He lives in Los Angeles, where he is the founder and lead teacher of the Angel City Zen Center. You can learn more about Brad at www.hardcorezen.info. And again, Brad, I thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, yeah so, good, good to be here. Thank you. Um, I did want to preface the show. A note to listeners, um, Brad's just getting over a cold. I'm. It's a cold or a sinus thing, so we're both a little congested. Yeah. You might hear some sniffles or coughs, but... That's the way of uh, the human experience. So, um, sure is. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're going to talk today, Brad, as I mentioned, you know, I've, I've had you on the show before and, and we've had conversations for other programs and um, I've always, always appreciated them. I, like I said, truly am a huge fan of your writing and uh, you're very, the approach you take, it's been very influential in my own writing and uh, work. And this, your latest book, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, is no exception. Um, and to be honest, I find myself like at, after I finish reading, you know, your most recent book, I'm like, what else, where else is he going to go? You know, like, what else is he going to do? And that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then you come out with something and it's, it's just as good. And, uh, um, you know, honestly, anyone who listens to the show knows, uh, I don't blow smoke and I don't have people and I'm not interested in speaking with. So, um, this was such a, a really special book, uh, partly because obviously it's, it's, not I, I don't know that paying tribute is the right word, but you know you're using this thread of losing one of your childhood friends, which you find out about while you're on a tour in another country, and um, while continuing that tour, you're writing these 
letters, these unsaid things to your, your friend who, who died and um, kind of poking and prodding at just the existential nature of being human. And um, there's so many great quotes and um, I don't know, I just absolutely love this book. So I, there, as well, I mentioned, you. well, yes, <laughs> thank you. I keep you. saying that. But <laughs> um, so, like I had mentioned, um, there there was a section. Um, well, like I mentioned before, we hit record. I wanted uh-huh. to read to to lay the premise, but I've been talking for a few minutes. Before I do that, um, was there anything you wanted to jump in and 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 say before I? No, it's great that you're talking because uh, with this cold, it makes it hard on my voice <laughs> to talk too long. But uh, no, it's uh, the the I I'm glad you like the book and and it really you said kind of what the premise is and I I you know you don't you don't like to brag about your own work I suppose but I feel like this is something special in a in a way that I didn't anticipate when I first started writing the book. So sure. I, I, I don't know what it's going to come out like when I wrote it. And I thought it was a good idea. And I started embarking on the writing process. But it was really when I, I did the audio book, because there's now an audio book version as well. And oh, I, and so instead of doing a normal audio book, I, I was going on the road again to Europe and I was going to be visiting a lot of the places that are written about in the book. So I decided I'll just read the chapters instead of just doing a normal lecture. I'll read the chapters in the cities in which they were, you know, uh, supposedly written. And and yeah, and, and I'd never done that with a book before and I didn't know how that would go over. But the reaction I got from the audiences over there was really uh, I. It was kind of uh, surprising, and, and my own reaction uh, was kind of surprising. I was, I, I was getting kind of choked up as I read these things in in front of audiences. So it's, uh, it, so I realized, oh, this is a this is a different sort of book, and yeah. and I'm happy to to promote it, even even almost as if it's something. You know, I don't I don't have as much of a, an attachment to it now that I've written it and put it out. Now I feel like, oh, this is a good book. I'm going to promote this good book. Right. Uh, you know, and, and separate from the fact that I happen to be the one who wrote it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. And that's so cool. I actually I had no idea about that audiobook. So now I'm going to have to hit up Kim when we're done and get my hands on that. Oh. Well, the audio book is published separately, so you'll have to... <laughs> oh, it is. All right, fine. I'll hit you up. and well, <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to pay in support. Um, so, all right. So um, I'm going to read, and listeners of the show know that sometimes I'll read excerpts uh, from the books. This is a little bit longer than I typically read. Not too long, but, um, I, you know, I, I'm like, ah, I'll read this paragraph and this and then, but I just, no, oh, I need to read you know, this as I'm going to read it. It's just what okay. feels right. So um, sure. everyone sit back, relax. It's story time. Um, so this is actually right from uh, the second page of the book. So you, you, you know, you wrote a little bit leading up to this. Um, it, you address it right off the beginning. Uh, chapter one carved into the universe. Dear Marky, you're dead now. So I don't know if you'll get this letter and you go on and I'm um, skipping parts of that just mm-hmm. for time's time's sake. But uh, where I want to pick up is uh, several paragraphs later, and you're still writing, and it says, it's 9.40 p.m., but somehow it feels like the middle of the night. Maybe that's because I just got the news that you died last night, or this morning, or something in the very recent past. I've traveled internationally since I was seven years old, 
and I can still never work out time zones. Suffice it to say, dead is dead, no matter what time it happened. Cancer, age 48. Jesus. I'm in Hamburg to talk more about Zen to some other people tomorrow night. Maybe I'll get it together by then, but right now I don't want to talk about fucking Zen. I want to be in Aberdeen, Washington, getting high with you, uh, Marky, on the custom-grown weed your neighbor provided to help with your pain like we did just a month or so ago when you were still alive. Watching stupid videos, I want to be back in Akron at the clubhouse 20-some years ago, sitting on the bed with you and Lydia, the tattooed lady, eating... I'll need help on this one. Rassisi's? Oh, Rassisi's. Rassisi's, yeah. Thanks. Planning world conquest. Oh, the things we were going to do. When I arrived in Hamburg maybe an hour ago, I switched on my laptop and an email popped up from Lydia. She said you died a few hours earlier. I don't know what time it was back in the States, but Lydia was still up. We reminisced about the days you and I and she all lived uh, in the clubhouse that dump in Akron where both our bands practiced. I think we both cried. Maybe that'll make you happy to hear. Everybody wants to imagine that people will cry after they die, right? I'm staying in an apartment of a woman named Johanna who runs a tiny little Zen center out of her tiny little apartment. She made one of its two rooms into a Zendo, which is what we Zen nerds call our meditation spaces. And that's where I'm going to be sleeping, if I can sleep tonight. After I got the news of your death, I excused myself and went out to wander the streets of the city. I do that a lot when I'm on these European tours, drifting alone through strange cities, poking through dusty old record shops when I can find them. You spent a lot of time in record stores too when you were alive. The record shops were all closed by the time I got to Hamburg, but I didn't know what else to do. Joanna and her roommate Julia were nice people, but I needed to be myself. You're not even the first person I know who died while I was on this tour. The day I arrived in Stockholm, the first stop on this tour, I got a call from my friend Melissa, who told me her brother Jeremy had passed away suddenly a few nights before. He was 36. At least you lived a few years longer than him, which is something, I guess. What, I'm, what am I doing with my life? That's what I'm thinking as I sit here with my slice of pizza getting cold while I write this letter you'll never get. I'm supposed to be some kind of spiritual master. I write books about it, for God's sake. People ask me questions all the time as if I have the answer for them. I have no answer. I have 30-odd years of looking at my own soul and finding there was nothing there to look at after all. I took a vow to save all beings. I couldn't even save you from being eaten alive by your own guts. And I never told you any of this. Until now, anyway. Now that it's too late to tell you anything. Where are we going? Where do we come from? Why are we here? Does anybody care? I mean, do they? Honestly. I guess your being dead is making me cynical right now. Not that I blame you for that. I've always had a cynical side. I'm skeptical of everything, including myself. Hell, I'm the last person I'd ever believe anything about. What most people call spirituality is bullshit, and yet I've dedicated my life to something most people call spiritual practice. Sometimes I wonder why I even do this, but other times I know exactly why. And, you know, that's like where I had to force myself to stop because, you know, we have to have a conversation here too. But it's like, 
I just kind of want to, I want to do my own audio of this book for, for uh, listeners. <laughs> Not that I want to take money out of your pocket, but it's just, it's so poignant and beautifully written. And uh, that's something well, I've, I've truly loved. It. That's what really caught me when I read Hardcore Zen for the first time was not just the fact that here's someone who um, is close to me in age and like gets it from the punk aspect, but uh, his writing is incredible. Like you're a writer and not just a, a, a teacher, you know, or, or I don't, I don't know which words you like or don't like, but um, mm. you know, that's a, a shining example of, you know, how eloquently your prose are written uh, and engaging. So anyways, um, anything you want to elaborate or, or just kind of uh, riff on from what I just shared? I know there's a lot in that, but um, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. It's always weird to hear that again or, or hear it read by somebody else. It's it, yeah. it was very personal. The it's it's written in the book. So there's a there's a bit of subterfuge uh, involved in the writing process of this book in that in that I uh, well I mean it's pretty obvious I didn't actually write these as letters right. you know it's it's a bit of a literary conceit to do it that way but the the one that you read was actually <clears throat> um when I was in Hamburg I I was at that pizza shop as it says and I had this diary with me and I and a pen and mm-hmm. I was writing this stuff down I, I always keep a little entry for each day because I think it might be useful later on to to write about my travels and stuff. So I'll write down the little details. Right. And that night I I wrote um, what actually reads like a letter to my friend who had just died. And when I came to put it in the book, I you know I went through several stages. There were I, I rewrote it. For the book, and then I looked at the rewritten version, and I thought, well, this isn't this isn't right. So I kind of went back and mostly just retyped what was in that initial diary entry. I, I had to add a few things and and words here and there because there would be bits that a, a reader wouldn't understand because they're too personal and that kind of thing. But it's pretty it's pretty raw, and that's pretty much what I wrote uh, to to my diary, you know, uh, uh, but, but actually as if I was uh, writing to my friend and, and the the whole, um, as I said, it's a literary conceit to do it this way. But I, as I wrote each letter, I really did try to be uh, completely honest in, in the sense that I, I tried to write exactly as I would write to him. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to make it just a sort of a fake thing. I tried to sort of fix in my mind this friend of mine who died and 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 put down what I would write to him if I thought he could read it. Right. And honestly, I don't know if he can read it or not. You know, my I'm I'm a bit uh, uh, let's see, I'm a bit of an agnostic when it comes to anything about life after death. I sort of I tend to believe the standard Buddhist line about what happens although that gets very complex and difficult to understand anyway yeah but even the standard buddhist version of what happens after you die i'm a bit you know i i, I take it all with a grain of salt right. so um yeah so that's yeah what you read is is real personal to me even yeah. though it's now out for you know however many people buy the book to read it's still it still feels kind of personal yeah well i, I appreciate you you know i uh, saying it was cool that I read it before we did, and um, part of me almost didn't because I can tell how personal it is. But yeah, it's like you know, I 
that's how you write so raw and candidly, uh, especially in this book. Um, you have a way with, you know, one minute um, really like hitting that that heart and gut in a, in a beautiful way. And then, you know, being a smart ass, sarcastic, yet in a playful, lighthearted way. Um, and sometimes not so much like and that's another thing I appreciate, like you don't pull punches and you speak your truth and, and share your your thoughts uh, without holding back. Um, but, I, you know, super poignant, as I said, uh, right. and, and one part which you kind of you, you did just talk about, but mm-hmm. in in that section, you know, where you say, where are we going? Where do we come from? Why are we here? Does anybody care? I mean, do they? Honestly, so I know you said you 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 know for for the most part kind of uh are in line with the Buddhist concepts of you know uh, you know something happens karma possibly yeah. reincarnation but again taken with a grain of salt because who knows you know like we're alive and you know we're not dead at the moment so yeah. I'm I'm not f- traveling the Bardos and you know that I know is more Tibetan than uh, Zen but um, who knows Um, but those questions like are they ones that uh, as you wrote them you know you you reflected on maybe while you were uh, reading them out loud for the audio book I mean I know those are things you've spent the majority of your life looking at anyways but Mm -hmm. um, are there any new insights or experiences or personal understandings you've had as a result well yeah i mean you get it, it, I, you have been this practice for 30 odd years you know and it and it and there is a certain progress and there's a certain amount of kind of understanding that that happens after you do a practice like this for a long long time and so yeah there i suppose insights i mean every insight this sounds like cliche but every insight i have just kind of makes me realize oh that's you know uh, that's not it right <laughs> you know so, so you, you know you kind of that's that's what's happened at various points along the the path is that it is that sometimes you'll be uh just walking along minding your own business and then all of a sudden it it feels like some kind of great understanding has dawned and that's probably true to a certain extent but any of the great sort of moments of understanding I've had have been followed as well by like, I don't know what the hell that meant. So, so like the, you know, the answers of where do we come from? Where are we going? And all this, a lot of religions like to posit a very specific answer, you know, especially the, the really sort of popular (laughs) religious versions will tell you exactly where we came from and what we're doing here and why we're on this earth and all that. And those answers have never been really very satisfying because they, they sort of put limits on, on things. And, and I, I feel like on the one hand, it's not all just sort of meaningless and, and who cares and, and we just live and get as much as we can and then die. I don't think it's like that. I think there is a greater meaning and purpose and and there's a direction that things are going and that things want to go and we can align ourselves with that and there's a greater cosmic meaning and I I believe all of that. But I also don't think you can ever encompass all that great cosmic meaning into 
into a nice easy formula right. you know that can be memorized and regurgitated on cue because that it doesn't work like that so i i feel like the zen process is the, the one thing i like about it is it it is it asks a lot of questions and provides almost no answers to those questions <laughs> you know which is which which i think initially even for me was really frustrating right because uh, because often teachers will will toy with you a little bit because they'll present you with these questions as if there's going to be an answer to them. And then after a while you go, oh, wait, there aren't any answers to these questions. But the questions themselves help um, help kind of point you in the right direction, which I think is real useful. So it's it's we're not just asking those those questions to be, I don't know, to be funny. You know, there is a oh, yeah. there is meaning to asking these questions, but the meaning isn't that isn't that okay. Dig around, and you're going to find out the answer to that question. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Right, right, and I couldn't agree more. I mean, at least based on my own experience, um, and that's kind of what I appreciate, like with Zen Goans and you know these things that they they kind of fuck with you, but in a way that, like you said, like oh, that's not it, that's not it, and you know, is there ever an it, you know, and, and, and I don't know, maybe there's not in it. And that's the, the whole point. Um, but you know, kind of, I don't know, a little bit of a side sidetrack, but not really, um, in relation to what you were saying, um, on my end, um, I know you're a big sci-fi fan and, um, I enjoy sci-fi. I follow a little more into the, the horror, um, category as far okay. as things i like but um so like the last year or two i have been completely spent on spiritual literature quote-unquote spiritual literature and um you know it's been hard to i've been having a lot of different guests on my podcast which has been really refreshing and uh i've been reading uh, this is probably one of maybe the only books that would fall under the you know, spiritual category I've read in the last year or so. Um, it just, it goes like that for me. Um, and yeah. I still have a reverence. I still have my bookshelf with a lot of the great mystic texts and, you know, teachings, but, um, I've been reading a lot of like David Wong and, um, Oh Jer yeah. David Wong's great. <laughs> oh yeah. I really enjoy his writing. Yeah. yeah. He just announced this morning. I don't know. You, you might not have seen, but, uh, his follow up to futuristic violence is, uh, uh, now officially available for pre-order comes out in October. And I, oh, okay. I, yeah, I can't wait. Um, love his. Yeah, he's stuff. interesting, and, and even the movie version they did of uh, what is it, John dies yeah. at the end. I thought, I thought they did a good job of it. Absolutely, uh, and Paul Giamatti, you can't go wrong. So, um, yeah. yeah, I love that. But I'm mentioning that because, like, even in reading like stuff like his or uh, Grady Hendrix, um, uh, or especially someone that I've uh, recently been really into Jeremy Robert Johnson who wrote uh Entropy and Bloom and okay. uh also Skullcrack City um and what kind of caught my eyes uh David Wong had endorsed a bunch of his stuff as had Chuck Polyanuk um and in Entropy of Bloom it's a, a book of uh short stories and one of them is called The Oarsman and you just made me think of it as you were talking about a bit about your practice and learning and, um, you know, people that have expectations when they step onto a path. You didn't mention that, but I'm kind of throwing that in there. And one of the stories is called The Oarsman. And at the end of his book, what I appreciate, and I just coincidentally have it sitting uh, 
in a stack of books as we're talking. So I just grabbed it. But at the end, he writes a, a little bit about each story. And I'm sharing this because um, I think it helps uh, talk a little bit about um, personal experience with mm-hmm. tradition. So anyways, the oarsman, he wrote, there was a stretch of time where my wife would read books about Buddhism aloud just before we'd pass out for the night. Some nights I'd find the ideas compelling and comforting. Other nights, when the focus would be ego death and universal oneness, I found myself sweating, tossing and turning, filled with existential excuse me, existential dread. It led uh, to me thinking about the idea of weaponized empathy and what kind of people might be left once that weapon had worked. This, yeah, weaponized empathy. <laughs> oh, the, the story is out of control. Yeah, it's yeah. Like these monks, like just creating, they're like you know, I don't know, meditating and like creating this crazy laser that comes down and like, yeah. I know that's his style of writing. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, but it's cool because in these writings of like Wong and, 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 and Johnson and others like them, there is a lot of esoteric and, um, you know, very meaningful uh, insight that underlies a lot of it. So uh, where was I going with all of that? <laughs> Anyways, I don't know. I think there's a lot you can do with in in a work of fiction. This is why I really I, I was going to say Rick and Morty because uh, yeah. I loved the first two seasons, and then I just had a chance to watch the recent ones, and I'm going, oh, they're not quite doing what they used to do on this show anymore. Uh-huh. But but you can get into these philosophical ideas from another direction, and sometimes I. I set out to be a fiction writer, really, and 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 my fiction still hasn't gotten. I I I've self-published. Well, no, no, one one of my fictional books did get published by a real publisher, but um, but mostly people only know the the nonfiction Buddhist stuff, and and I find there's a bit of a limitation when you're doing that because there's an expectation if you're writing a nonfiction, especially a Buddhist thing, that you, the audience sort of expects that you have the answer or at least a religiously you know a religiously supported answer or belief system you know that part that's part of your religion that you're going to present to to them the audience and i don't think the good the the great works of buddhist literature are not like that And, and that's why i find buddhism is this kind of funny thing that gets it gets slotted into the category of religion because sometime in the you know the 19th century or, or 18th century the, there were these people who decided that's where it belonged and it's it's stayed there ever since but I, and i do think certain kinds of buddhism are religious but zen buddhism isn't right. and 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 so a, a work of zen buddhism is you know, it, it's like existentialist or, or something in, in that sense, it, except, in fact, there's a lot of uh, things that are very similar to existentialism in Buddhism. The the one thing that makes it real different is it has a practice. Right. Buddhists have a practice, which, you know, the meditation practice, Zazen, right. and we have rituals that, that we kind of more or less agree upon as part of this practice which makes it look like a religion. But I think the approach is very different from a religion. It's not there to give you an answer. It's it's to provide you with a set of, God, it sounds like such a cliche, but I'm going to say it, a set of tools with which to explore the questions yeah. that that it presents you with, uh, which which I think is what makes it a little better than than 
any other any form of Western philosophy I know, because the Western philosophy, like the existentialists and and others, are are also good at, at formulating uh, interesting questions, but they don't give you much of anything to work with, you know, how how to deal with those questions or an, an approach. And and what Zen provides is is this physical approach to dealing with these questions, which I think most of us in the West would never even think that right. there could be a physical approach to uh, to responding to philosophical questions. You know, in the physical by the physical approach, I mean the meditation practice, which is actually a physical exercise. And right. you know, it's an it's an exercise in which you don't move, but it's but it's still every everything else about zazen other than the fact that you're not moving is exactly like an exercise you know it's exactly like anything you'd go to the gym and do because you're you're doing it very deliberately in a in a physical way right. but but you're using that state that comes from the exercise as a way to penetrate into these deeper questions and i don't think you can penetrate into these deeper questions without doing something like that. I mean, you can sit and think about the questions, but thinking will only take you so far. And the Zen practice gives you this physical thing to do, which can take you uh, farther than, than thinking can. Right. Which I think most of us in the West wouldn't even, we'd be like, what? You can get into a philosophical, you can get into a philosophical question in a physical way, and they, uh, I think that would just be baffling. Right. Uh, which it is, you know, I, when I first came across it, I was just like, what? <laughs> you know? But um, but I did it for a while. I'm going, oh, yeah, this helps. This helps penetrate into that question by by sitting with it and not thinking about it. Right. <laughs> you know, you go, oh, that's uh, that's interesting. And, and I love that. And it's like you said, I, uh, I don't know where was I know I read it, but it's something like you've spent so many years like looking into I don't I don't think you use the word soul maybe you did but uh only to find nothing there um you know and it's just a very interesting thing that the deeper we go you know it's I'll be the cliche now the onion you know example peeling yeah. the, away the layers over and over um but that's another thing I love about your writing not just in this book but others is um you know the fact that you write in such a way that aside from being raw and honest and, you know, like saying I've like, I laughed when you said I'm the last person I would trust to have any of the answers. Like I feel the same way writing my own books or when I do my own workshops. And I, I say that I'm like, don't believe a word I say, you know, find out for yourself a very, you know, Buddhist thing to say. But, um, I really love the fact that you also, you know, you used to write for like Suicide Girls as did yeah, I, yeah. and you write for Alternative Press. And um, recently, I've been writing for Revolver Magazine and Fangoria. Oh. And but oh, Fangoria, <laughs> yeah, like that's now I'm jealous. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> childhood Chris is, um, you know, like jumping in joy over that one. Um, yeah, but it's like I'm, I don't know how or why, but they like are letting me like use horror threads and but bringing in these like, you know. Otherwise, I, I'm so spent on the word spiritual, but for lack of a better word, oh, yeah. like spiritual ideas, but using, you know, horror as a theme to explore them. And I love the fact that I'm able to do that. And I, and I love the fact that like you bring that into your writing as well. And that's another one of the reasons I fell in love with your stuff is like, oh, man, he, he's a nerd just like me. And he he actually like wants to know what's going on, which I think is a big part of just what happens when you 
get into punk or hardcore. You know, you most of us get involved in that because we're looking for something deeper uh, yeah. than what is offered at face value. And then you grow up and I still love punk and hardcore and I'm still in bands and I still meditate and I'm still, you know, just doing what I can do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, alternative press, is that something um, you're still currently doing or, um, you know, I haven't what, I, I haven't been in contact with those guys for years, but they oh, okay. that that was a kind of a funny situation because alternative press back when when Zero Defects of the, the hardcore band I was in, well, I'm back in the band now because yeah. we got together about ten years ago, right. and uh, we um, we used to hang out with those guys. That that was based in Cleveland, and we were based in Akron, which is like thirty miles away. So you know, I would see the alternative press guys before alternative alternative press was one of these little uh, Xerox zines that came out right. initially yeah. before they you know got on slick paper and went nationwide. So right. I remember alternative press being something that they would print up at the local Kinkos and right. and pass out at the punk shows. So, but it's, and it's been interesting. But no, I I haven't written for them for a while. Although I I kind of agree with you on the on the spiritual book side, I, you know I, I feel like it's kind of funny because I write in this genre, and this is you know the section where you find my books is the section where all the spiritual books are. Right. But most of what what sits next to my books on the shelves, or I wouldn't even consider picking up. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and, and which is not to disparage all of it. I mean, some of it's probably really good, but yes. it's just not. It's just not something I'm that interested in. I mean, partly for me because it seems like work. You know, right. when I when I when I see a book like that, um, and and partly because you know a lot of them are are written at this sort of intro level because that's where most people are at with this stuff anyway. Right. So you know, something that might be a great, great read for somebody who's just getting into Buddhism or spirituality in general. For me, I, I be it, it, it's a perfectly good book, but I don't, I'm not going to read it, <laughs> you know, because it's, a, you know, I don't need to read that. Uh, and, and, but, and so I have a lot of uh, interest in presenting it in different ways you know right. that that's to me what the the big tragedy is that a lot of people who could use this sort of approach are not going to ever get it and this is partly right. what letters to a dead friend about zen is about yeah. because the the guy i'm writing to i his, his real name wasn't marky but you know we call him marky in the book sure. uh, the the marky person that i'm writing to uh, he he was a guy. I mean, he was a real person yeah. who I knew a lot, and I was close to. And he knew that I meditated. I, I but I never made a big deal out of it. And he would have been a great example of one of the many people I've known in my life who I think could have benefited greatly from this sort of practice. But he would just that I can't even imagine him uh, trying it out, right? Because because that would be so alien to you know, to the way he was raised and how he thinks about things and all that. And, and, and it would just seem like this goofy religion that, that Brad got into, you know, right. probably as far as he was concerned, I don't, I don't know what he really thought of it, but, you know, just to get into something religious that just wouldn't, cause, cause you look at religion, you're like, Oh, that's a bunch of garbage. I'm not going to get into that. Right. And, and I actually don't, 
that's that's the approach I took to religion in my youth. And these days I kind of look at it, even people who are conventionally religious and go, okay, I understand that. I mean, I'm not going to, like I say, Zen is an unconventional religion if it's a religion at all. But, um, but people who go into conventional religions, sometimes they're going into it for, you know, exactly the same reasons that I got into Zen. It's just that you know, this is the approach they prefer. And, uh, and I think that it's valid. But, but right. there's a lot of us who really need something yeah. uh, and we're never going to find it. I was just looking at somebody on Twitter ranting about, you know, how it was a person who, who considers herself a materialist. You know, she says this on, in, her, in her tweets all the time and does not, even though she's very smart and she's an academic, does not understand why people would get into religion and i and i get that yeah i get that because if you're if you're from if you're from that mindset you look at religious people and you go oh they're just they're just wacky delusional people sure but but there's a reason that religion has persisted throughout time through every human culture and i don't think it's just because we're all just you know wishful thinkers I, i think that there's something real that religion is attempting to address and sometimes it doesn't address it very well you know and often it gets kind of usurped by people who realize the the power that's you know available to you if you are seen as a religious leader Uh, so you know and, and it easily devolves into something terrible but uh but that doesn't mean that at the core there's there's you know, a lot of people assume that, that okay, that because of that, at the core, there's nothing valuable in, in religion. And, and I might have gone that way, too, you know, right. because, because of the way I grew up and, and what I saw and the abuses I saw of religion around me. You know, I, I could easily have gone that way and been totally cynical about it. But somehow, you know, I, I lucked out. You know, I met this teacher of, of Zen who had exactly the right sort of approach that that made it available to me and so i think oh maybe i can be that to other people i can kind of provide an in but i'm not you know a a way that that they can frame it to themselves and go okay maybe i can look into this thing right yeah so well said and you know i completely understand what you're saying about seeing your books in the bookstore like next to books that you normally otherwise wouldn't read. Um, Same happens to me when I see mine. And I think we're just going to need to get the, the literary, I don't know, Barnes and Nobles is the last major one that I'm aware of, but you know, create a new section. Come on. Like I got very lucky in that my last book was in the philosophy section. I don't know how that happened, but yeah, (laughs) that was a lot nicer than the self-improvement because same. No. Yeah. Every um, once in a while, I'll walk into a bookstore and they have my books shelved in the music section, which I oh, find, okay. you know, this has happened a handful of times and I, and I never move them. I think, oh, that's good. That's, yeah. you know, it's, uh, and, and I, I think that's funny. I guess it's because of the covers and the, and the fact that I, you know, I do play in, in a band. So right. maybe uh, the people who are shelving the things assume that this is about my work in the band and sometimes they're they're about both so you yeah know. absolutely but uh, but i think that's you know I, I i'm i'm so happy when they're they're in the wrong section because yes. <laughs> when they're in the right section nobody will find them anyway and that's the point and that's why like you said like you're you're 
you and I, I think, take a very similar approach in the sense that there, you, you nail that there are so many people, like, for example, your your friend, Mark, you, uh, the alias in the book, mm-hmm. who potentially could have benefited from this. But when presented uh, as it, you know, is in a popular format, um, these books were mentioning without names. Um, I'm sure listeners probably already know many of them or, or whatever. Um, but there are so many people that are jaded or feel disenfranchised or skeptical toward the idea. Um, and they certainly could benefit from it. And, you know, one of the new books I'm working on, I'm co-writing with the head staff writer at Fangoria and it's a nonfiction, but it's, you know, trying to, it's our attempt to reach that demographic with some of these ideas and methods and, and practices that actually that's a great idea. I mean, yeah. horror movies you, you traditionally have had a lot of, Oh, there's a lot of connection between horror and religion. <laughs> yeah. hundred yeah. percent. I just, it, yeah, I got lucky in the sense that the, the, you know, since Fangoria rebooted the editor in chief over there, or, or uh, what is it? Editor in chief. I think so. Anyways, um, he's open to that idea and he sees the connection and the, the head writer that I've become good friends with that I'm working on this book with, uh, also like, you know, he, um, he has, a I don't know, some high degree and, um, not therapy, uh, psych, ugh, I'm drawing blanks. It's my, my head cold. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm blaming it on that, but he has all these degrees and whatnot. Uh-huh. And, um, and he knows the value in that too. And absolutely, like that's why I've always loved horror movies is not just because they're fun. There's so, so much like connection there. Um, yeah. But yeah, so yeah, I got into science fiction for the same reason. Right, the the right. science fiction that I like is the really philosophical stuff like Philip K. Dick. And, yeah. and you know, I think that that's the first place I read about Zen. Although I later realized that Philip K. Dick didn't know anything about Zen. <laughs> but But he would always sort of present these ideas that he'd gotten out of Zen books, which which I don't think he ever really understood very well. But but the fact that he was presenting these ideas was really interesting yeah. and and, uh, and and valuable to me. So that that was a great thing. Yeah. I mean, whatever, whatever, you know, gets your foot in the door, I suppose. And um, and that's that's what helps uh, that then. Awesome. And I think Philip Dick, he's still a great writer or was. Oh, yeah. But I still love reading his stuff. And um but anyways man we've kind of nerded out on a lot mm-hmm. except for your book though i know we've oh, yeah. been tying that in but i want to bring it back to the book um okay. so i mean there's so much that you cover of course in the book um and what i love is a lot of it are concepts that you you may have talked about in the past some of them are ones that i at least don't recall you talking about but it's through a completely different lens and a different format um and so let's let's talk about like um, something. Uh, one of your letters, the Akron Book of the Dead. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, that chapter? And, and you know, because the Tibetan Book of the Dead is. Yeah, know. I'm trying to remember what I wrote in that. I mean, obviously, it's been a while since I read the book, sure. even the audiobook version. But uh, the idea is. Well, yeah, the Akron Book of the Dead was just a kind of play on that that uh, we both grown up in and around Akron, Ohio, right. and. I and he was dead. Right. And and so this kind of question of death and what happens after you die and and what it means this is a big deal in in Buddhism. Occasionally I think it's a little bit too big of a deal with sure. with certain people in in the Buddhist stream, but it's it's definitely important and significant. But 
you know, where I kind of said this earlier, whereas most religions will give you an answer, here's what happens after you die. The Buddhists really don't. I mean, uh, people are sort of familiar with the Tibetan Buddhism, which does have a kind of a, a structured, you know, they have the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which which is supposed to tell you all the stages that, that one goes through after death. In the Zen tradition, that sort of teaching kind of exists in the background, but it's very rarely brought forward. Like in Dogen's writings, Dogen being the guy that I mostly study uh, in, in terms of Zen philosophy, right. you know, he, he wrote this, he wrote an incredible amount of stuff. And there's yeah. only one uh, small chapter I know of in which he gets into anything like what happens after you die. And even when he gets into it, he kind of comes at it in this tangential way where he doesn't, he uses the stories, which are basically the same sort of stories that you'd find in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, to emphasize how important it is to remain dedicated to your practice, to your meditation practice. You know, he's basically right. telling you to remain dedicated to your meditation practice even after you go through the fifth bardo, after you die, and all this stuff. And 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 he never tells you that this is what you ought to believe about what happens after you die, because that's all speculative. And in fact, he contradicts, you know, that stuff. All the time in other pieces of writing he'll tell you firewood becomes ash and it never becomes uh firewood again similarly people after they die don't return to life again so he has that quote you know which right, is right. which is hard to reconcile with this idea of the you know these bardos and things happening after you die so i, I just tried to kind of address that and i really actually Initially, when I came across that sort of teaching, it confused me. And, and I was pretty young when I started. I was in my late teens, early 20s when I started practicing this stuff. And I suppose I had hoped at that time that somebody could give me an answer because uh, there was some stuff going on in my family. There's this uh, genetic condition that, that runs in my family that two of my aunts had died from and that my mother was uh, starting to show symptoms of even at that point. And I thought, oh, geez, I better get it together and find out what happens after you die. So I sort of hoped that somebody would say, well, what happens after you die is A, B, C, and D. Right. and I realized that after reading dozens of answers to that question that were framed in more or less that way, that none of them worked. Like, none of them, <laughs> you know. Right. I, I, I always hoped to come across the magic one that that I could believe, and and I still have it, and that includes the Buddhist versions, too. I, I can't sit there and, and just believe them. But at the same time, that approach, that sort of, that skept it's it's an approach that's at once skeptical and not exactly cynical you know right. like like we don't necessarily believe this stuff but you're 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 willing to try it on for size and go okay maybe this has you know has something some indication uh to to where i need to go but in in the end dogan's one of dogan's best phrases about that is at the time of of dying there's nothing but death and at the time of being alive there's nothing but being alive right. and so you go okay well then at the for the time being here i am alive let's let's think about that or not even think about that let's let's fully experience being alive in all of its aspects and then 
you know, eventually I'm going to die. And all I can really do about that is, you know, try to delay it as much as possible and try to stay healthy. But in it, but it's inevitable no matter what I do. So I might as well just leave it, you know, leave it till later. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll deal with that when I deal with it. Because there's not there's nothing else you can do. You know, it's it would be like anything. You you could I could plan out uh, how I'm gonna open. I'm just trying to think of a random thing. How I'm gonna open my front gate and go get my mail later on. Right. You know, and I could plan that in intimate detail and everything else. But uh, until I actually go and do it, well, you know that it's just it's just ideas. Right. You know, in my mind, and and those ideas might have some use but once i kind of figured out the basic direction i want to go then i then i you know i might as well just have fun <laughs> you know i'm doing something else because yeah. it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to obsess about it so i i, I can't remember exactly a, a, what what i wrote in that chapter but but I think that was the sort of approach yeah, I was taking. <laughs> it was, and that's great. And 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 I I, I apologize because I should have like read a little excerpt or something. Oh, but um, yeah, that you you summed it up very nicely. Um, this one I'm sure uh, you will remember, or I shouldn't I shouldn't say sure, but um, <laughs> I might I'm, not. I'm guessing, and uh, but no, it's it's something that um. I thought would be a a good part uh, or a good topic for this conversation because it's something that's constantly coming up um, and has been since the dawn of, you know, any kind of teacher student relationship. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's towards the end of your book. uh, You have a chapter. Crazy wisdom is usually more crazy than wise. Yeah. And uh, now what I found interesting is you use the example of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and you, you write almost what I would write about him and to down to the point where I still absolutely love the book cutting through spiritual materialism. Yeah. It's a book I try to read once a year um, because it just, you know, I don't know, kind of puts myself back in check in a way. Um, yeah. Yet on the other hand, for those who aren't familiar, you know, Trunkpa Rinpoche was kind of in a way out of his mind, just this loose yeah. cannon and, um, as many others, you know, like uh, recently Netflix has done these tremendous documentaries on Osho and Bikram. Oh, I saw that one, yeah. Yeah, the, the Osho one was, I thought, fantastic. I don't know if you saw the Bikram yeah, one. I saw, yeah, I saw both of them, yeah. Yeah, and and he, besides that, so Gyal Rinpoche and Alan Watts had his moments. And, and uh, this is not just the same Buddhist, because, of course, it crosses the board Thomas Merton and the mystic Christian traditions. And, I mean... A lot of people, you know, we're human beings, um, yeah. and and that's why that student-teacher relationship can be so dangerous. And you know, more recently, a lot of people that read our stuff, obviously, uh, the stuff with Noah that's happened, and yeah. you know, don't not that we need to address any of that, but in general, um, you know, I I would love for you to to talk a little bit if if you're up for that about, you know, I guess having that discernment between the teachings and the teacher and, and, and how to be, how to protect oneself. It's such a, it's such a tricky subject because you don't want to, I don't want to say the wrong thing and give people encouragement to kind of just go along with a bad situation because a lot of the, a lot of times that people get, find themselves in this situation with this, you know, a so-called spiritual teacher in which there's abuse going on and, and you really got to get out of that. 
at the same time, I, I think there is, you know, it's like separating the artist from, from the art and, and you don't, you can, you can find a lot of genuine, uh, good and useful teachings coming out of people who themselves may not always embody the best of those teachings. So right. that would be kind of a diplomatic way to put it. Yeah. And and that doesn't mean that the teachings themselves are the problem. I mean, they might be. You know, it depends on the, the 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 actual case. But I mean, there's a reason Buddhism has persisted for 2,500 years. It's 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 shown itself to be resilient even in the face of people who take it and and kind of abuse it in in certain ways. And I and I don't know because it, it's all it all comes through people. So. You know, anything you receive from your teacher is is now yours. You know, it doesn't it doesn't it's not dependent upon that teacher. It's not this magic thing that comes from, you know, uh, that person to you. It's it's something that you are both endeavoring to discover that that exists beyond both the teacher and the student. And the only thing the teacher has is is that she or he has worked on it longer than you have. That's usually you know about all there is to it and and maybe in working on it longer they've become able to to reflect it a little better or or to express it a little bit more clearly but that doesn't mean that it's made them a perfect person so you you just have to kind of go with that and and sort of hope for the best and i and i do think the relationship especially in the zen stream from between teacher and student ought to be a little dangerous you know it's not it's not exactly that this is one of the beefs i have with the way it's sort of going in america is they want to set up all these sort of protection things you know rules and stuff to protect the student and 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 all of that and sort of treat it almost like psychiatry and i think psychiatry is great where it you know where it goes but zen is supposed to go a little deeper than that and in order to go deeper than that a certain amount of risk is necessary and and so you know it's it's always a like i say a tricky situation you have to you have to decide at every moment how much how much risk you're willing to to put up with uh, in your practice, and whether the person that you are training with is treating you fairly and honestly or not, right. you know, if you're if you're actually if you are a case where you were definitely being exploited, well, that's that's not good, and and you probably ought to get out of that situation. But there are there are times when the when I know that my relationship with my teachers got into areas that were like, oh, this is uh, this is a bit, you know, dodgy, as the British say. Um, And and I have to decide, do I want to do I want to carry on with this and, you know, risk risk getting hurt or or whatever it is or or not and in in my case i was lucky that i had two teachers who were very sincere and who did not exploit their students or do anything like that but you know it's so tricky i i could probably go on and on because there's 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 a certain amount of exploitation that goes on of of teachers by their students and then that never gets 
you know, people people love the stories where the teacher is just the bad guy and does all the exploiting of the students. But every story that I've come across, there's always been at least some element of the of the students doing uh, some of the exploitation too. Absolutely. And yeah. and nobody wants to own up to that. And in fact, whenever I've brought it up, people just scream and holler and go, "You're blaming the victim." And I'm going, "No, I'm not blaming the victim. I'm just yeah. saying that that these are." these are, you know, there's, there's a complex interaction going on. And if you're just, if you're only looking at one side of that interaction, you're not going to understand it. Yeah, no. And that's so true. And, and I know like, that's why I didn't touch what's recently been happening, um, with, uh, you know, the Noah and yeah. cause I, I don't know, I wasn't there and everyone has their opinion and, um, you know, it is what it is and it's unfortunate for everyone involved, but, um, I don't know. And people would message me and say, Hey, what's going on? And I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, and yeah, I'm that's not... all I can say about it. That, and, and this is probably similar to you is that people expect me to know what's going on with Noah Levine and, yeah. you know, they, they assume, Oh, you must be friends and hang out or something, but that's not, <laughs> that's not the case. I've met him like, you know, I don't know, two or three times, never had a conversation with the guy. So I can't say, what really happened right. all, all i can say is well something must have happened because everybody's pretty upset right <laughs> yes then, and investigations you know, what that was i don't know <laughs> right right and and same here like i i think i met him once in 2005 and uh i can say that through the email interactions we've had he was always very pleasant and you know i i have certainly his books helped me early on in my journey um but yeah, it's like people just assume same thing like, oh, you guys are kind of punk rock and you write about this from this kind of perspective. And but no, like, you know, just you and I have never met in person, though. We've had yeah. you know, several conversations, but um, God forbid something like that happened to you or I, I you know, I don't know. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. And there's there's such a kind of a rush to, to judgment, too. And, and I think, well, I, you know, the the people who are involved in that they they have their own feelings about it and they're going to deal with those feelings as they deal with them and it's not really my place you know a lot of times i there there was another teacher uh, who got involved in some scandals and stuff and 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 i've talked to some of his students who who say well yeah i was you know, I probably would be considered a victim of his exploitation, but it didn't feel like I was a victim of his exploitation at, at all to me. Right. And they really resent being everything being characterized as, you know, exploitation because that invalidates the work that they did with this person. So, you know, that's why I don't want to rush in and, and judge all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, just to clarify, Noah is only coming up because he's one of the more recent cases. But yeah. the, the point of me bringing that up had nothing to do with Noah per se, but just the the safety of students and the relationship with teacher. And I'm glad you made that point about also students, um, you know, sometimes not victim shaming in any or, or, you know, not victim shaming. Now I'm trying to like be very cautious with my yeah, words, yeah. but it's such a goddamn tricky thing. But I, I agree with you that, you know, um, there are other sides to the story and other scenarios and ways in which it can be interpreted or experienced. So, um, I know that is the diplomatic kind of way to go about it, but it's also, I think the only fair way, unless you, like I said, were directly there and, and, know exactly what happened so um anyways yeah. that's not how i want to end the conversation so let's let, <laughs> yeah. you know and 
<laughs> there's so much more in your book, but uh, again, I do think that was at least worth um, a portion of the conversation. So, you know, something you'd wrote uh, in the book is that it's just a short line, and and I appreciate that you wrote. I'm not all that interested in Buddhism. I'm much more interested in what uh, truth is or what mm. is true. And maybe that's a good place to end because, you know, we call ourselves whatever we want or don't want. And, and that's fine. It's just words and labels. And um, yeah, but, you know, like I love that sentiment. So, I, you know, maybe if we can end on you just uh, sharing <laughs> some thoughts about that. I mean, you know, to, to end on a light topic, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I never it, it's. I remember early on, my first teacher, Tim, told me, you know, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, what religion are you, I might, I'd probably tell him a Buddhist, but otherwise I don't announce myself as a Buddhist. And this is a guy who'd been dedicated to Buddhism since he was 15 or, or 12 years old, I think. He was really young when he started. Right. So, so it was really significant to him. And, and that's kind of how I feel about it, too. I feel like, I, I obviously... I'm a Buddhist, you know, if you really, if you really want to go there, but I don't, I don't, I'm not sitting there. It's not, it's not that I'm dedicated to Buddhism. I just find Buddhism to be a really, really useful way to get at the things that I'm really interested in. You know, yeah. I'm really interested in what's the truth about reality and how, how to be, how to have an ethical life and how to do things that are going to promote humanity and, and help humanity sustain itself over the long run because i think it's it's important that we do sustain ourselves over the long run you know i'm not one of these misanthropes who thinks that that humans that the world would be better off if humans just died i think the world will be better off if humans can get their stuff together and 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 do it right and remain as part of the ecosystem that we're that you know that we're in so but that you know buddhism i just find as a useful way to get into that. And it, you know, Buddhism is an unfortunate word because we usually understand those isms to mean that's what you worship. So right. a Buddhist must worship Buddha. But my teacher always said, we don't worship Buddha. We, we, our object of worship in Buddhism is reality, you know, and, and, and Buddha was just a guy who was very good at coming up with a way to look at reality in, a, you know, in, in, in all of its aspects, and the great thing about Buddhism is it's, uh, in, in a way, I, I always kind of think of Buddha as being, you know, sort of Einstein in a sense. You know, Einstein came up with the theory of relativity and a lot of ideas of physics that were hugely influential and important, but no scientist worth, you know, worth their salt would ever say, okay, we just, you know, we're just going to freeze the words of Einstein and just stick with those forever. Right. You know, he was the guy who set the ball in motion for a lot of the things that we understand and, and keep exploring in science. But we can, we can say, well, Einstein might've been wrong, you know, about certain things. Of course, if you're going to challenge Einstein, you're, you know, you better be, you better be prepared to back <laughs> right. up your challenges. 
and that's the way I feel about Buddha in, in his role in Buddhism. You know, he he set the ball rolling and he put a lot of things into motion that were very important. Now, maybe Buddha was wrong about certain things or maybe he made some mistakes. But at the same time, he's such a sort of giant in the field that if you're going to accuse Buddha of having made mistakes or being wrong, you better be prepared to back it up the same way a scientist would have to really make a, a strong case for saying that Einstein was wrong. But, but at the same time, it's not that we worship this guy Buddha. He, he was the guy who kind of gave us a framework for, for looking at these things. And, and that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the framework that Buddha provided for looking at these things. And I'm interested in trying to do exactly what he did with it, which is, you know, to honestly uh, pay attention and try to see how to work with what we're given in in life and and so in, in that sense i'm not that interested in buddhism uh, as much as i'm interested in the truth that buddhism is addressing i love that and so you know we're just over an hour here and um i have to wrap this up but i did want to read just very briefly um just from the back jacket because we talked a lot about what is in the book and there's so much more that we didn't get to because uh, you know, I'll take the the hit on this one. You know, just nerding out on stuff, which yeah, uh, yeah. is it's. I don't know. I enjoy doing that because it gets tiring talking about the same thing over and over. But it does. Um, for for the audience, um, just a a quick kind of overview of the book. Um, just to be very clear on um what you can expect from it aside from what we've discussed in this conversation, um, which, uh, again, the name of the book is Letters to a Dead Friend, friend About Buddha, I'm sorry, About Zen, uh, by, of course, Brad Warner, and it's published by your longtime publisher, New World Library. And uh, the back just reads, The night Brad Warner learns that his childhood friend Marky has died, Warner is about to speak to a group of Zen students in Hamburg, Germany, it's the last thing he feels like doing. What he wants to do instead is to tell his friend everything he never said, to explain Zen and what he does for a living and why he spends his time sitting, 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 meditating my life away as it all passes by, lighting candles and incense, bowing to nothing. So as he continues his teaching tour through Europe, he writes to his friend, <clears throat> excuse me, all the things he wishes he had said, simply and humorously, he reflects on why Zen provided him a lifetime in a difficult world, or a lifeline in a difficult world. He, explore, he explores grief, attachment, and the afterlife, and then proceeds to poke and prod at the truth. The result for readers is a singular and winning meditation on Zen, and a unique tribute to both a life lost and the one Warner has found. Wow, usually I'm much more eloquent in my speaking and reading, but um, anyways, that is, I, I think that's a very succinct and, and apropos uh, sum, sum, summary, wow, summary of the book. Um, one that, I don't know if this conversation did justice to truly how special it is, but I hope if nothing else, it piqued the curiosity of listeners enough to pick it up and read it. Like I said, uh, for, for listeners, I haven't read 
a lot of spiritual material uh, recently, but this is a book that it's a very accessible and engaging, entertaining, and uh, insightful read that I can't recommend enough. If you're checking this out on the Be Here Now uh, webpage, our Be Here Now network webpage, just scroll down. The link to both Brad's website and the book are there. Brad has a very uh, active YouTube page as well. What's the uh, just YouTube and search Brad Warner? Or do you have a yeah? URL? I think that's the best way. I think I believe it's like YouTube slash Hardcore Zen. Okay. Uh, I finally set that up, cool. but I'm, I'm a little reluctant to say that because I'm not I'm not absolutely sure. sure. But yeah, I I've put up so many. The YouTube channel is really fun. I, I kind of think, well, maybe I should do something more with it. I just sit yeah. in front of my bookshelf and, and talk about stuff and yeah. put up a video every couple of days. But I but, love uh, it. I love that. It's really it, good, yeah. It's a good way to communicate. You kind of get a different uh, feel than uh, than you'd get from a piece of writing. Yes, so. absolutely. And you get to see like you and, and you just being you. And it's uh, so I recommend that. So we'll make sure that that's linked as well uh, to the show notes. So. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for writing yet another incredible book for your time uh, with getting over a cold. And, um, you know, I hope this book just continues to get in the hands as, uh, in the hands of as many readers as possible. Well, thanks. All right. Have a good one. And uh, until next time. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.